This episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. New supporters can vote on what books and guests should be featured in upcoming episodes. Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash cmtu history. Welcome. You are listening to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I am your host, Kevin, and today we raise a glass of cold water in honor of Prohibition. In the 86 years since its repeal, we have romanticized the era of the speakeasy and the gangster in film and literature. But what gets lost in popular culture is the Prohibition movement's origins in the women's rights movement, how tricky the whole ideal was to enforce, and how enforcing the dry law put it at odds with Americans' constitutional freedoms. I'm joined today by John Shuttler, who co-wrote along with the late Hugh Ambrose, Liberated Spirits, Two Women Who Battled Over Prohibition. John is a professional research historian who has made a 20-year career of digging through archives and libraries on behalf of authors, companies, and government bodies. In our discussion, we cover two women with unique vantage points regarding prohibition. The first is Pauline Sabin, an influential East Coast socialite who helped shape policy within the machinery of the Republican Party. The second is Mabel Walker Willebrandt who served as Assistant Attorney General of the United States for most of the 1920s and was responsible for enforcing the 18th Amendment. Now, on to the show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools Them stories that are just too crazy to believe Hi, John. Welcome on the program. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. How are you today? I'm great. Very good. Um, well, if you could, uh, could you introduce yourself to the audience? Tell us a little bit about you and uh, how you became involved with this topic. Sure. Uh, my name is John Shuttler. Uh, I am the co-author of Liberated Spirits, Two Women Who Battled Over Prohibition. Uh, it was not intended that I be the co-author. The, the project uh, was begun by my friend Hugh Ambrose, and I served as his research assistant for several years, uh, collecting a lot of the information that would go into the book. Uh, unfortunately, Hugh passed away uh, during the writing of the book. His uh, widow, Andrea Ambrose, asked if I would take on the book if she if I thought it could be finished I I did a quick search I thought it could we were well along in the process uh, and I was happy to to do that so um, I jumped in pretty early in terms of doing the research and so on and then obviously later uh, to finish the writing of it now what can you tell us about the backgrounds of your two main characters Pauline Sabin and Mabel Walker Willebrandt the Department of the Navy. Um, and so she had a lot of uh, her upbringing within sort of the, the halls of Congress and, and within Washington, D.C. or other political arenas. Uh, she'd also grown up with a certain amount of wealth in her family. Um, and so she comes from a very um, involved family and, and upbringing in terms of their relationship to politics. And 
Uh, Mabel Willebrand comes from a very different experience. Her her family was um, fairly poor. Uh, she pulled herself up by her own bootstraps, if you will, in terms of deciding that she was going to make something of herself, beginning first as a school teacher, um, and then deciding that she really wanted to help women um, become more involved uh, outside of the home in the way that she had. And so she becomes an attorney and really works for uh, women's rights on a variety of different levels by the time that uh, prohibition is enacted. Okay, so the focus of this story is on uh, these two individual women, but can you explain how the concept of prohibition and uh, the women's suffrage movement are, are really connected? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the two had actually been connected as far back as the uh, Seneca Women's Conference on, on Women's Suffrage in 1848 and even a little bit before that. Um, many women's women, uh, their initial involvement in sort of the political spectrum, if you will, uh, having no vote at that time was to champion temperance causes and the abolition of liquor. Um, and some of their members found that they were getting, you know, in that charge, were found that they were getting turned away at uh, meetings of temperance uh, in, in the abolition and temperance movements. And at the same time, that brought them into consideration of, well, why don't we, if we had the vote, we could certainly have uh, a much stronger voice. And so the two <clears throat> movements uh, sort of travel in parallel. Um, and it explains a lot about why the two um, uh, amendments to the Constitution occur, you know, within sh short uh, order of one another, because they had always been sort of viewed as uh, joint measures uh, carried by the same groups of women for the most part. Okay, so, um, you know, right now, 2019, we're pretty much celebrating the centennial of both of these uh, additions to the uh, Constitution. And um, one of these amendments, the, the 18th Amendment, uh, dealing with prohibition, we have not kept. Um, so can you explain how prohibition uh, on paper is different than it turned out in practice? I think that because the prohibition movement and, and you know, the call for temperance and abolition had been so long in coming, you know, dating um, in a formal manner from the 1840s, but even before that in smaller groups and societies advocating for those things, um, that by the time we get the 18th Amendment ratified, um, first of all, um, liquor is abolished or, or outlawed in 75 to 80%, it's, a, it's a, not entirely clear, of the counties in the entire country. And so I, there was a belief that um, you know, they were fulfilling public need and public wishes when uh, the amendment was ratified. What they didn't account for was that while geographically it covered a huge swath of America in terms of areas that had already become uh, prohibition counties or states, uh, that it didn't uncover, encompass 75% of the population. And so in heavier population centers, there was still a longing uh, and a desire for alcohol. And so I think that there was this, miscommun not miscommunication, but misunderstanding about 
the fact that, you know, simply because it would become a law that people would naturally observe it. It, it wasn't seen as as the same as as the rights that have been conveyed in other amendments and within the Constitution itself. This was something that limited rather than granted uh, certain uh, personal freedoms and liberties. And so there was this idea that, again, you know, America really wanted this based on the long run up to the amendments ratification and the fact that in so many places um, it had already been enacted on a local or state level, but that really didn't encompass people's true feelings about it. There was an idea that this was going to be more of a temperance uh, amendment um, to limit the access to alcohol um, rather than actually abolishing it. Because when you read the amendment, it's clear that uh, the manufacture and the sale and the distribution are outlawed, but the consumption is not. And so uh, when you talk about what's on the paper, I mean, that's that's a pretty glaring <laughs> omission uh, between what's on the paper and what then people interpret it as, you know, I, I'm still allowed to drink. Um, I'm just not allowed to manufacture or sell it. And, and to that point, because um, there's <clears throat> nothing in there on how you enforce it, per se, right? Congress has to pass an additional law to enact that, right? Correct, yeah. So we end up with the Volstead Act, which sets uh, the parameters under which this will be enforced and the establishment of a new uh, federal agency, the Bureau of Prohibition, to uh, take the reins of that. But even that is muddled because it, it comes with... It's the first time the, the federal government has really tried to establish a, an, a, an agency for law enforcement. And so there's a bit of a, a learning curve that, that uh, needs to be adjusted constantly throughout the Prohibition era because just saying we're going to create an agency uh, to do this doesn't necessarily make it happen, especially when the, the fallout is that we've established the Bureau of Prohibition and it's affiliated with the Department of Internal Revenue because penalties and such will uh, be um, subject to various tax requirements and so on and so forth, but neither the Department of Internal Revenue or the new Pro Bureau of Prohibition had uh, any attorneys to prosecute any of these things or to provide legal um, reference and, and uh, assistance in framing cases and, and bringing them to fruition in the courts. And so um, there's this sort of, you know, again, this glaring hole within the Volstad Act that just sort of lays things out in a very basic manner without considering how that actually works uh, on the ground or in the courts in this case. Yeah, I, I got the sense when reading the book that they're kind of, um, as the expression goes, they're building the plane while it's in the air. <laughs> That's a great analogy, yes. Building the plane while it's in the air. I agree totally. Um, so uh, Mabel Willebrandt has a very central role in that enforcement aspect of this. Um, what can you tell us about her uh, about her role in the Department of Justice? Well, it's quite interesting. So she she is uh, selected as the Assistant Attorney General who will have primary charge of uh, of prosecuting and bringing to prosecution um, all cases involving prohibition throughout the country. She gets the job primarily, first and foremost, I mean, she, she's an excellent, excellent attorney, um, and she has some favorable political connections that put her into this. 
But overriding everything is the fact that she's a woman. And the powers that be that nominated her and, and give her the position are very determined that the position will only be given to a woman because it's viewed as a woman's issue. Prohibition is a woman's issue. By the same token is the thought that uh, if prohibition fails, um, we're going to be able to hang it around the neck of women um, because the argument will be we put them in charge of this and they still couldn't make it work. So, you know, when Mabel Willebrandt comes into her office, she knows all these. She's very astute and she knows that this is sort of an albatross around her neck, but she's determined to prove that the law of the land can be enforced. Um, again, her biggest problem is, though, she does not have any control over the actual prohibition agents who are out in the field bringing cases. And most of those men are unschooled in police uh, procedure and uh, the building of cases and evidentiary matters um, such that when her district attorneys throughout the country get the cases, many of them don't have the kinds of evidence and the kinds of uh, following of procedure in terms of search and seizure and things like that, that she can easily prosecute the cases. And so she's uh, frustrated pretty much from day one with this uh, dichotomy that has enforcement occurring by agents over which she has no control and the insistence by her superiors and, and the general public that she isn't doing enough to prosecute uh, these, these new crimes. So it's a very difficult position for her to be in. But and she recognizes she's no dummy. She knows this is her burden, but she's going to try and find a way uh, to make it work. And uh, she does the best she can. She advocates to have the Bureau of Prohibition placed under her control. But by the same token, she doesn't want the agents that exist. She wants them to undergo uh, additional training, uh, you know, what we would call more vetting to determine what where their true loyalties lie in, in regards to prohibition. Um, and so she's battling that throughout her tenure. And so the the other character, Pauline Sabin, uh, she's not an elected official in or, or public appointed official in the same way Willebrand is, but she's very involved in politics. Um, how did she help shape policy in the Republican Party? Well, uh, first and foremost, you know, she she sees she seizes upon. I think she had always been to some degree politically active, uh, based upon her her upbringing and her you know existence around politicians and politics and uh, the dynamics of that that world. And so when. Uh, national suffrage is granted through the 19th Amendment, uh, I, she seizes upon that opportunity opportunity to engage herself personally in politics and joins the local uh, committee of the Republican Party and begins to climb the ladder, uh, such as it is, um, within the party onto the national level and the national scene. And she does that by, you know, espousing what have always been her fairly... Um, I guess you would say conservative roots. Um, so her, while she's advocating for the greater participation of women within politics and within the Republican Party in particular, uh, she isn't really saying anything that 
they aren't already saying and and they like that you know sort of the 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 controlling men in the back room they like that oh wow you know here's a woman we can trust she believes in the same things we do you know limited government uh personal liberties and freedoms um you know those kinds of things we can trust her and she can be our inroad to all these new voters and and um, potential political participants and and she takes advantage of that. Um, she sees that they need someone like that. And since she does share most of their general beliefs, uh, she's able to, you know, ingratiate makes it sound like she, she kowtowed, which she never did. Um, but she definitely finds a way to be the voice in the room. And then they learn in the process, you know, this is a really, really smart woman. This isn't just about us using her to make inroads with uh, women and women voters, um, she's she's smart and she has very good ideas and she's uh, you know a political tool that we can use and and so then she takes she, she sees it they're willing to do that and so she takes advantage of it as well. Okay, and and early on she is for the most part a, a prohibitionist as well and. Um... It's fair to say that the Republican Party is the the dry party in the U.S. Yeah, that's that's very fair. Um, certainly more so, and some of that has to do with the fact that um, the Republican Party is more uh, was more inviting of women uh, on a general level. Um, its party leaders were more uh, accepting and, and advocating for the Nineteenth Amendment for suffrage, um, and so it seems much more as an open party, particularly for women. Um, and, and by the same token, uh, they because they are a party more open to women, it's also seen as the party more aligned with prohibition. And some of that goes back to <clears throat> the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the formation of the progressive movement, um, which sought to rectify a lot of corruption it saw in government. And one of the things those those political leaders saw as corrupting was alcohol. So it sort of pairs well with uh, the strength in, in numbers of women in the prohibition movement um, relating more to the Republican Party goals and ideals certainly than the, the Democratic Party's ideals and goals. So in, in both these cases for <clears throat> Willebrand and, and Sabin, um, how did being women affect them in their respective positions and how they juggle their personal lives in an era where working women were pretty rare? Yeah, uh, certainly Mabel Willebrandt saw that a lot more. Uh, she had, you know, as soon as she was of age and financial ability, had decided to, you know, enter into a working life, uh, first as a teacher, and then, as I said, by becoming an attorney. And so she had been facing those questions of, you know, why aren't you at home? Why are you doing men's work, essentially, and certainly had many hurdles to overcome when she entered the political realm as well. Um, and then she had an additional hurdle. While she was um, married to Mr. Willebrand, um, they hadn't, at the point at which she becomes the assistant attorney general, they haven't been together for many years. Um, they are estranged, um, not officially divorced at that point. Um, it's an unspoken thing. Um, she is still referred to as Mrs. Mabel Walker Willebrandt uh, throughout her entire tenure. 
um, in the Department of Justice, um, but there is no actual relationship there. So managing her personal life uh, is, is quite difficult because she's certainly done with Arthur Willebrand, but they don't get a divorce for about five years during, uh, you know, until around 1925, uh, 1926. It's a little sketchy on when papers were signed and such, but, um, she's a young woman, really. She's still in her late twenties, early thirties when she takes this position. And, you know, she, has moved on from Arthur and and would like to date and have a li- a social life, but there is this sort of cloud over her head that prevents some of that. At the same time, she would like to have a family, and so she begins looking uh, to adopt on her own, which in itself is a huge uh, difference from from what other women would have been able to attain. I mean, forget the fact that here's a single woman looking to adopt, uh, you know, with no supposed breadwinner, but if she's the breadwinner, how would she possibly be able to take care of a child? The idea being, you know, that that's what women do. And when you have children, you stay home and you take care of the, uh, of the house and the child and, and all such associated things. And so she, she really just stays strong. I mean, she has a great support network of, uh, her parents and, and some very old and dear friends who support her, but it's very difficult. She alternately has a very lonely life outside of work and a very rewarding one once she adopts, uh, Dorothy in 1925. But again, it, it, it leads to a lot of backroom gossip about, well, you know, what happened to Mr. Willebrandt and why does she still use that name and who is this child? And so she, she has a lot to juggle, but she's just a very determined uh, woman and, and she shrugs it all off. I mean, her personal correspondence shows her frustrations, but in public, she is always professional, always accommodating, always, um, you know, strong. As as for Pauline Sabin, you know, she, she again, she comes from such a different world of, of privilege having grown up, but she's never she never sees herself as so privileged that she's above anybody else. And so, you know, she's able to fit very much into large fundraising gatherings and, uh, you know, participating in these political movements. She has two sons. They're both in their teens by the time the prohibition era starts and they're in um, uh, prep schools uh, not to say that she isn't involved with them but they're not in the home they're not requiring the same level of care as um, as uh, Mabel Willebrandt's daughter who's only three and a half when she's adopted Pauline also has uh, an interesting contrast in her life her husband is a staunch, staunch Democrat and very involved in, in in the upper echelons of the Democratic Party, particularly in the state of New York where they live. And given his, his business interests, um, he has a lot of uh, involvement with that, participating in, he helps organize social functions for the 1924 Democratic Convention and actually gets Pauline to help him. Um, so her social life and, and social uh, expectations are are very different obviously than Mabel's but she does have a lot of the same issues in terms of you know why aren't you at home why are you doing this who are you to speak up but again she has this 
husband who sits on the opposite side of the fence from her politically, but is very uh, supportive and says, yeah, go, go ahead, go do those things. So I think that helps a lot. They're both very strong, strong women, but they also had some good support around them and they just shrugged it off. They just knew what they wanted to achieve and, and they moved forward with that without letting sort of the, the noise alongside of them in the background hold them back. Okay, so one thing that I found um, very interesting in the book is, you know, you walk us through the, the 1920s. Um, you get to the 1926 uh, congressional midterm elections, and uh, here we are a decade after ratification of prohibition, and prohibition is still a hot-button topic. Um, why is this still a central issue? It's become apparent to... Uh, I, more the more the general public and certain members within the Democratic Party more so than the Republican Party, that it isn't working. You know, they've seen large scale corruption of uh, folks in the Bureau of Prohibition. Uh, the courts have become so backlogged that uh, cases really aren't proceeding in a manner that uh, is timely in any way. So you have, um, you know, you've arrested these these bootleggers and rum runners and, and these distillers, but most of them don't get prosecuted within even a couple years of their arrests um, because the, the courts just can't keep up with the volume. And then when you factor in obvious corruption that you know is quickly and, and easily reported in the press, um, it causes a lot of questions in the public's mind. And there are a series of small committee hearings and, and discussions in the halls of Congress about, you know, whether or not this law can be made to work properly. There aren't so much arguments about, you know, uh, repealing it because no amendment had ever been repealed and it would take 36 states to do so. And they just didn't, no one believed that that was possible. So the discussions are, you know, how do we make this work? And so the 26 <clears throat> congressional elections are hugely important because many of the key figures on both sides of the argument about whether it can work or can't work and what would be the adjustments are up for election that term, particularly in the Senate. Obviously, all the representatives are. But there are some really key senators that come up in that 26 election. And so um, it is a real sort of lightning rod topic at that time in terms of what can we do about it because it, it isn't working but it is a massive intrusion upon our lives and it's been an intrusion and expansion of the federal government and their role now in law enforcement and there's been a lot of discussion in states like New York who essentially nullify the law they pass they had had a state law supporting the 18th amendment in 1923 that is um, overturned and so you have states saying, yeah, it's the law of the land, but we won't, we won't allow, you know, our state police to help enforce it. You know, if you ask for something, we'll help, but we're not going to go out of our way to enforce any of these laws. So you have a lot of breakdown going on that by 26, as I said, you know, there's this general question of, you know, can this work? And if it can't work, what can we do about it? And so these key senators are, are put on the block, if you will, to try and answer those questions in, in 26. It kind of as a, a prime example of the how complicated 
this is between federal government and states. Um, there's a third narrative in the book, and that is of uh, someone named Roy Olmsted. And uh, what can you tell us about his case and its significance to prohibition and, and public support for it? Yeah, he's an he's an interesting character, and, and the reason he's included is be, because he is interesting. One, his story is just has so many twists and turns uh, that it it was included to to represent first and foremost, you know how how convoluted the law was, how difficult it was to you know catch and and convict people who clearly were in the business of you know, distilling or bootlegging or running, you know, liquor um, within their respective communities. And Roy Olmsted is is further unique because his operation may have been bigger than all the ones we're traditionally, you know, um, hearing about, you know, the Capone organization in Chicago and various organizations in New York and along the coast. I mean, his was truly massive uh, in terms of the scope of of operations and he was unique in that he was not a gangster yes he was committing crimes and he uh, essentially employed a gang if you will of workers but uh he he made it very clear to anyone who worked for him that you know they were not to carry guns that they were not to engage in any violence or any kind of illegal act other than the selling of liquor uh, because he felt that that would do damage to his business. I mean, he at, in his mind, at, at heart, he was a businessman. He wasn't um, trying to steal territory or getting conflicts with others. He comes into his business in Seattle at a time when a lot of that had already gone on and all these smaller outfits had sort of um, shot themselves up so much that there wasn't much left of them. And uh, they had easily been convicted on crimes of violence, not so much on crimes violating uh, prohibition and its uh, various laws. Um, and so he steps into that void and says, you know, he, I mean, he's a smart businessman. It's like people aren't going to do business with you if they're scared of you. And people aren't going to do business if you don't provide the best product. And, you know, we can't do any of that if we're getting caught up in turf wars and intimidation and violence. And so he's a unique character because he doesn't fit the mold of, of what we see as the, the huge liquor bootlegger and rum runner. And he doesn't fit the mold in terms of uh, sort of how he fits into his community. And so, and at the same time, he provides this example of how convoluted it is. And his case eventually is one of very, very few involving individual bootleggers that goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and that happens because he is convicted largely on testimony uh, so-called testimony collected by wiretaps. And and you have to remember at this time, phones are, are not prevalent. I mean, they're out there, but you know, they're not in every single home. Um, they're not uh, all connected to one another. I mean, there were numerous exchanges that you would have to call that would then connect you to another exchange to connect you to another exchange to get to the actual person you want to talk to who may be living in a building who has you have to go knock on the door and tell them to come down the hall and so on and so forth. So the, the concept of tapping phones, I mean, they literally listened in on the wires, wrote things down by hand, and then later uh, transcribed that information a couple of different times. And so um, 
his case comes down to whether or not that is a violation of his privacy to have his conversations um, recorded in this manner, um, to have his phone lines unknowingly tapped and, and listened in on by prohibition agents. And so it goes to the Supreme Court and they end up endorsing the law saying that, you know, there was essentially probable cause for the agents to have listened to him. But what's interesting is that while the Supreme Court upholds his conviction and upholds the right of law enforcement agencies to wiretap suspected criminals, uh, the dissents, it was a 5-4 vote, the dissents write much stronger opinions than those supporting the conviction. And and they warn about the dangerous road this is leading down, because uh, this is the first time wiretaps have come up, this idea of invasion of privacy within someone's home and personal communications. Um, and the case becomes a landmark. I mean, it still gets cited today in, in various cases. Uh, even it came up, you know, when we passed all the Patriot Act um, legislation after 9-11, um, the Olmstead case was brought up in terms of what can you and can't you do because there's been a lot of uh, few later decisions on, you know, do you need a warrant or not a warrant? When do you need it? And how do you have to notify? And, and those kinds of things. So it was for most of the court, even those supporting it, they regarded it as a uh, very dangerous precedent that they were forced to support in some cases simply by the letter of the law, uh, not whether it would actually be the right or the wrong thing to do. It posed a huge ethical dilemma for them. Um, and so his case is good, one, because um, it is so significant, two, because Mabel Walker Willebrand plays a prominent role in deciding how that case from its very origin should proceed. And uh, it also reflects a lot of the concerns that Pauline Sabin had about these violations of personal liberties and, and has a huge impact on her view of prohibition and, and uh, changes her view of prohibition. Yeah, and, and, and so both of these women um, seem to, by 1930, to become um, quite disenchanted to some degree with, with prohibition, or at least what it had become. Yes, most decidedly. Uh, in Pauline Sabin's case, um, she in 1928 has just decided that um, the violations of personal freedoms and liberties are far greater than any good that could be done by um, the law. and. On top of that, she doesn't see that the law is doing a lot of good. Um, she sees a deterioration in people's um, respect for the law, and that's you know that's a big thing for her. It goes hand in hand with, you know, you can't really allow people certain freedoms if they don't respect the law. And so she sees both being violated um, in in the workings of prohibition. And for Mabel Willebrand, she she's just she still believes she has a very unique perspective. She never really gets into much detail on whether she believes in prohibition as a matter of principle in terms of, you know, drinking being wrong and, and damaging to society and to families. She views it simply at that point as it's the law of the land and therefore it needs to be followed and it needs to be enforced. Um, but by 1930, she sees that 
it none of that is occurring. There isn't sufficient funding. There isn't sufficient training. There isn't uh, greater prosecution of those uh, corruptive corrupt uh, agents that still are within the Bureau of Prohibition. And so she doesn't give up hope that it could be enforced if all those things were made right. But she realizes that the chances of that happening are slim to none. And so she uh, resigns from her position uh, out of frustration more than anything else. And she had been frustrated for most of the time that she held the office of assistant attorney general, but she just believed that if she worked hard enough and and pushed the right sort of buttons and reminded people that eventually they could get this to work and uh, and 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 have it properly enforced. But by thirty, she sees that that's just not going to happen. and And so she, you know, sort of washes her hands of it. She still believes that as long as it's the law of the land, it should be enforced, but she just doesn't want to be the person doing that anymore. And as we all know, by 1933, um, the amendment itself will have been repealed and thus ends America's experiment with prohibition. Um, What insights do you think we can draw from, from that period in history? I think, you know, people immediately want to, you know, so many prominent historians over the years have referred to it as an aberration or, uh, you know, this failed experiment and uh, this, uh, you know, blight upon our, our history. And and in one sense, you know, those things are true. But by the same token, it's a significant period, I think, for the fact that, you know, for all all the attempts by the progressives and other politicians of, of the pre-prohibition era to sort of correct what they saw as failings and corruption within their political system and refine it and make it better. Uh, This was a part of that effort. You know, can we make ourselves better? You know, can we find our better angels? And, and there, but there wasn't the acknowledgement that you just can't take away people's personal freedoms, the things done within, you know, essentially the privacy of your own homes or of private clubs or establishments um, could not be restricted. Um, And so trying to legislate personal behavior uh, while in general morality and theory might have seemed a good idea for the betterment of society, it just isn't possible. And And I think that's you know why the era is important is because it does create a legacy where people do return to it and say you know we did try and legislate morality we and and it didn't work and here's why it didn't work is because you can't change people's behavior and you can't intrude upon them uh in this way and violate their privacy and their personal freedoms and and choices now it doesn't mean there haven't been lots of instances of that uh, being attempted again but it's interesting whenever those things fail, people go back again to prohibition and say, you remember we tried doing similar things a lot in a similar vein and it didn't work then. I don't know why we would think uh, that'd be any different uh, in later attempts. So it, it is significant because it was really, it was met or proposed with the best intentions, but those intentions just failed to acknowledge that uh, you could change people's behavior in s- such a significant way. Human nature is a is a difficult thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, sure. well, John, this has been a, a 
a very good discussion. Um, I, I love the Prohibition era, and, and I felt like this book was definitely a fresh take on it. Uh, if someone wants to pick up a copy of the book or learn more about, about you and your work, uh, where can they go? Well, the book, uh, you can get it from Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, you know, Indie Press, all, all sort of online uh, book sources that you might use. Um, information on myself is at uh, my website, www.johnshutler.com. Uh, for some additional information on the book and a couple of videos, you can go to of Pauline Sabin making presentations uh, while arguing for the repeal um, and just some other kind of cool artifact stuff. You can go to www.hughambrose.com. Hugh was uh, the real driving force on this and obviously uh, my co-author. Um, so both of those have some additional material, especially Hugh's site. So I encourage you to, if you want to know more, to yeah, dig in. Okay. Well, John, again, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Oh, thanks a lot for having me, Kevin. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with John Shuttler. If you are interested in picking up a copy of he and Hugh Ambrose's book, Liberated Spirits, Two Women Who Battled Over Prohibition, you will find a link down below in the description on your podcast app. If you've been listening to the show for a little while and you've been enjoying it, consider going on iTunes and leaving a review. It really helps the show by helping it get noticed and helping new people discover it. Lastly, if you're on social media, I'd love to hear from you. I'm most active on Twitter, at CMTUHistory, as well as on Instagram, at CMTUHistory. All right, that's it for this episode. We'll do this again in three weeks on May 28th.